The reality is the reason we want to work out. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. To stress the body enough so the body responds. Studios in Malibu, California. Genetically, so that we get what we want. We get that strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy body. Welcome to another Primal Blueprint Podcast here in the Malibu studios. I'm host Brad Kearns with our favorite guest, Mark Sisson. And we have to say before we start, thank you so much to the listeners because we're going up the charts on iTunes. What do you think, Mark? It was awesome. We debuted at number one last week with uh, the podcast under the category health. So I'm very proud of that. And uh, let's see if we can keep that up. So today, let's do a podcast on the Primal Blueprint Fitness Strategy. And one of the main things that we've seen with our guests at PrimalCon and our readers is there seems to be a distinct group of people who are quite hardcore. They're really into the CrossFit thing. They're working out like crazy or they're from the endurance scene where they're training for incredible endurance feats and immersed in a really uh, intensive schedule. Or on the flip side, we have people that are busy, maybe not so athletic, and they're just doing a performance functory approach to exercise where they go to the gym a couple times a week and ride the elliptical and read their magazine and go home. And so we want to get more people into that sweet spot where they're embodying the three primal blueprint fitness laws. And we talked about those on a previous podcast, but why don't you just briefly go over why those laws are so important and what the benefits are of, of training in those categories. And then we'll talk about some approaches to get into that sweet spot. Right. Well, presumably we all do this exercise thing because we want to be healthy and we want to be fit. We want to look good naked. We want to have more energy. Um, you know, otherwise we would just sit on a couch because it's there uh, and and not work out at all. So there's this broad spectrum of people who are ranging from the couch potatoes to the over exercisers. And you're right. There's um, there's this talk of a sweet spot. Where is it? Uh, where's the ideal place to be in terms of exercise? And it does it does come back to evolution and the fact that. The primal blueprint laws that say move around a lot at a, at a low level of, of aerobic pace or activity, uh, that sort of emulates what our hunter-gatherer genes expect of us. Our genes expect us to be moving all day long, to not be sitting, to not be lying down, to not be standing still so much, but to be migrating, foraging, climbing, crawling, all the things that hunter-gatherers did for two and a half million years. So that's kind of the first the first expectation that we're trying to fulfill for these, these genes is, uh, is, is a means by which we can move around at that low level of aerobic activity. And, that, and for many people, that just means walking a lot. Turns out that after all the years I'd spent as an endurance athlete and all the miles I ran, walking still is one of the healthiest and most healthful uh, activities that a person can, can undergo. So, you know, we, we look for ways uh, in our lives to incorporate that first law of, of exercise, which is to find ways to move. Now I have, you know, I have my stand-up desk, and uh, that's been a boon for me. I, it's amazing how my hips have opened up as a result of not sitting all day in front of a desk, and I'm able to, to stand. I'm also able to shift positions a little bit. I take a break every once in a while. I walk around the house, or I, you know, go in and grab something out of the refrigerator or whatever. But I'm always kind of moving, even on a on a day that I'm working relatively hard. Down at my office, we have tread desks or treadmills for people who want to be active during the day and are able to do that and are able to put put in six or eight miles just walking while they're working. So there are ways in which we can figure out how to get this low-level activity handled without having necessarily to go to the gym. 
On the other hand, if you are an avid jogger or a cyclist and you want to get out there and do some of that low-level activity, that's another alternative method. That's another way of doing that. So that's that's sort of the groundwork. Now, there are three components to this primal blueprint exercise pyramid, and that first one covers the sort of low-level aerobic activity. The second level is finding ways to lift heavy things, and that's where we're looking at Again, we were emulating the hunter-gatherer who had to lug a carcass back to camp or the hunter-gatherer mother who had to carry the kids around or the, you know, building the shelter or, or, or moving rocks or climbing trees or whatever it was that, again, our genetic recipe expects of us in order to maximize health, maximize fitness, maximize fat burning and all the things that we want to do in this sweet spot. And it turns out research shows that, you know, two sessions a week are probably optimal for most people, maybe three, rarely four. And you get, you know, if you start to get into that more than four sessions a week of resistance training in the gym, now you start to encounter the situation where the body can't recover quickly enough. The reality is the reason that uh, we want to work out is to stress the body enough so the body responds genetically by taking those epigenetic signals and, and telling the genes to start to direct the manufacture of new muscle tissue to make that uh, those tissues stronger, to increase the number of mitochondria, which produce the energy in the body. And all of these are just our way of manipulating these signals so that we get what we want. We get that strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy body. The danger then is either not doing enough. That's not really a danger, but if you don't do enough, you don't maximize your your ability to arrive at that ideal body composition. And if you do too much, then you tear it down because you don't give your body enough time to recover. And then just to, to finish off the triad, the, the third thing is sprint. Once, once a week, maybe twice if you're really fit, but once a week, find a way to raise your heart rate up to near maximum for anywhere from 10 seconds to 50 seconds or a minute a couple of times in a workout. And that's probably one of the most efficient workouts that you can ever do. And it doesn't matter if you're sprinting on the beach or on the track or if you're on a treadmill or a bike or an elliptical or a rowing machine, you can you can get to that point where you are doing this all-out sprint effort and manifesting all of those sorts of genetic signals that you want to give yourself. So speaking to the devoted fitness enthusiast for a moment, we see a lot of people making that mistake of transitioning out of the optimal zone and getting into a chronic pattern. Specifically for endurance people, uh, you mentioned this in detail in the Primal Blueprint, uh, there's a distinction point where you get an aerobic benefit, it's low level, it's not stressful, and then as you get a little bit faster, a little bit too fast, and you made the cutoff point of 75% of maximum aerobic heart rate, then you start getting into a chronic pattern. Can you talk about the physiology a little bit of why that's so important to moderate pace? Sure. Uh, and that's not to suggest that you should never go out and run, you know, t do a tempo run at, say, 75 or 80 or 85 percent of your max heart rate. It's just that what tends to happen in the endurance community is, is you tend to do too much of that. So you think, if, if I can run 10K, that means I must be able to run 10K and I must be able to do it every day. And there was a, sort of a conventional wisdom 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was more miles was better. And the more that you could handle, the better an athlete you could be and the, better, and the faster you would race. And it turns out that, that in many cases, what that would do is tear your body down. Because while you want, again, if you just step back and say, what are we trying to do with exercise here? Yes, we want to enjoy it. We want to love it. But the reality is we're doing exercise. And presumably, many times we're undergoing exercise that is not necessarily pleasant. 
it's actually quite painful, but we're doing it because we want to derive a benefit. We want to improve as a result of having done that. So my take on this is what's the minimum effective doses? What's the least amount of exercise that I can do and get the results that I want to do? And that comes back to this whole point about recovering. If you can't recover from a workout sufficiently, then it's not time to go do another workout on top of that. And that's really, it's the accumulation of these workouts without recovering that leads to overtraining, that leads to injury, that leads to burnout. And it happens so often in the endurance community, but now I'm starting to see it in the CrossFit community, for instance. You know, three days on and one day off is a very, very heavy load, even despite the concept of a 12-minute workout or a 17-minute workout. If it's entirely glycolytic and you are doing, you know, micro tears, making, if you're if you're damaging the muscle in, in any way, shape, or form, intent, however intentionally, and you're not giving yourself enough time to recover, eventually these these insults add up and you and you fall apart. Well, here's the issue, and we face this a lot when you were coaching me when I was racing as a professional triathlete, is you're out there, you love it, you're highly motivated, you have goals, and you also get that endorphin rush or that flood of cortisol into your bloodstream after so many chronic workouts where you actually feel great and you're buzzed and you want to keep going and keep pushing yourself and you don't know the damage that you're causing. Um, it's chasing the high, and it's very similar to what an addict, you know, that's uh, abusing substances would be looking for. You literally are chasing a high. I remember when I when I finally decided not to compete anymore, mostly because it was forced upon me as a result of overtraining and injuries. But I still had this Jones for the endorphins, and when I couldn't race at the elite level as a marathoner. I just shifted right over to riding a bike because my injuries weren't uh, affecting me so much on a bike, but I was still putting in 15, 20 hours a week of cycling. And then I got into triathlon and then I got into, you know, even after I left triathlon, I had to, I, I got into inline skating because I was chasing that high, chasing that endorphin rush all the time. And I realize now that that people talk about the runner's high in glowing terms and they and they and they look for it and they think that it's a good thing and they assume that well because I have these endorphins and I have this runner's high that kicks in every time that I that I work out it must be good for me if you take this from an entirely evolutionary perspective and you think well why why would the body create a feel good hormone when you are nearly dying you know when you're pushing yourself so hard that you're out of breath and and your brain is otherwise, your cognitive brain is otherwise telling you, slow down, man, you got to stop. This is not good. And yet you've got this feel good sensation. Well, from an evolutionary perspective, if I'm being hunted by a saber toothed tiger, or if I've been running from something that's trying to kill me for the last hour and a half, it makes sense that I would have some form of an endogenous chemical that would allow me to continue to feel good about life and to look forward to living and to and to be euphoric rather than just give up and drop dead or be a deer in the headlights. And that's sort of the, the evolutionary nature of endorphins in my, in my you know, theoretical interpretation was that it was this once in a while kind of thing that would be generated as a result of a life or death situation. Well, here we are again on a daily basis creating a life or death situation because we're chasing that high. And literally until we had access to cheap calories that converted into glucose very quickly, a la you know, grains and sugars and things like that, You couldn't even contemplate the idiocy of going out and running hard every single day for fun. You know, so it's a very, very recent adaptation. Well, so we take this back to what's the, you know, what's the take-home message about what you should or should not do as an endurance athlete. 
And the answer is you should you should train the different components of component parts of the event that you're planning to race, for instance. So you should do a little bit of speed work. That's the sprinting we talked about. You should do a little bit of lifting and maybe focus on squats, lunges, and, and things like that that are weighted in favor of uh, the lower body and legs. And you should recover in between workouts so that every once in a while when you decide today's the day, I'm going to go out and run, you know, a hard five miler as hard as I can. That's fine. And that's not considered chronic cardio unless you decide you're going to do it again and again and again, day after day. So when you say should, you're making a critical assumption here that the listener is interested in building their health pursuing peak performance or doing the best they can as opposed to just having a compulsive outlet for their energy every day and and blowing their system out with a chronic pattern. I mean, I always ask people who want to get my advice on endurance training. The first thing I say is why? You know, why do you want to do this? Why are you feeling compelled to go run a marathon or run a half marathon? Is it because it's a, a lifetime goal, a bucket list item, a notch on your belt. Is it because you want to prove to your ex-girlfriend that you're worthy and uh, she shouldn't have left you? Is it because you're trying to prove to your parents that you're, you know, and, and I'm not suggesting that there are right or wrong reasons to do this. I just want you to understand for yourself why you're trying to do this. And if you say, if you tell me, well, I just, I want to do it because it's been a lifelong goal and I want to see what I can do and I want to test myself. I said, that's great. Now we'll talk about how you can get to that point. But it is very important that people, you know, when you, when you elect to pursue a goal like this, I think it's very important to understand why you're, you're going to pursue that goal. And then with, with your why in place, allow yourself the luxury of training as little as possible to achieve that goal. Now, if you tell me, well, I want to be a world-class athlete and I want to win a gold medal in the Olympics, you know, that's great. And I think I I will support you in that. But you and I have to decide right away that there's going to be a lot of costs to that. Your health is going to suffer. Your family life is going to suffer. Your work is going to suffer. And you may or may not achieve your goal, but just recognize it that at some level of of this uh, tremendous amount of output, there's going to be a time where, you know, you're, you're going to break your body down. You're going to get sick more often. Is that worth what you tell me you want to pursue? And if you say it is worth it and it's all worth it, then, then I'm fine with that. But I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to start running because it's part of an anti-aging strategy. And I want to live longer and I want to be healthy. And so I'm going to start running marathons. Well, you know, running marathons isn't really the ideal anti-aging strategy. If anything, really training for marathons the way we used to, ages you as, as rapidly as just about anything I can think of. So I don't want to take away your goal, but what I will say is let's let's figure out a way that you can train that will enhance your health, that will still allow you to toe the starting line and do very well against uh, people in your age group and have you recover faster when, once the race is over uh, and have you go about the rest of your life. And, and there, this is really the challenge with the Primal Blueprint and this style of training and eating is you know how do we orchestrate a training program that gets us the greatest amount of benefit for the least amount of pain, suffering, and sacrifice? Okay, let's say I'm, I'm going to buy in now. I realize that my three days of high-intensity CrossFit-style workouts with one day off and then back into that is, is overdoing it. Uh, most listeners will have a, um, a track record of injuries, illness, setbacks, declining fitness performance. So we're buying into the idea that slowing down and backing off is a good idea that's going to help us reach our goals, enjoy it more. 
What are some of the ways, for example, how can you tell if you're overdoing it when you're flooded with stress hormones and feeling good? Uh, well, there are a lot of new techniques now. I mean, the old days we used to just take our heart rate in the morning and if we woke up and our resting heart rate was five or 10 beats higher than normal, that was suggestive of a fact that we were overtrained. Uh, now we have uh, heart rate variability programs that uh, take a look at the uh, metronomic functioning of the heart and, and single that out as indicative of a uh, overtrained or slightly overtrained condition. But I think the, the, the real, uh, the essential element of training for me is the development of an intuitive sense of when it's time to go hard and when it's time to back off. And what I've seen with elite athletes over the years is that there are many of them who have decided that it's not really about the miles, it's about the key workouts and how often they can fit a key workout in and go hard when they go hard and rest when they rest and intuitively know when they wake up on a morning of a day that was planned to be a hard day and they just don't feel it. They don't, they don't grunt through it. They don't struggle through that workout. They take the day off or they take the day easy. And intuitively over time, they develop a sense of when it's appropriate to go hard, when it's necessary to back off. And, you know, I, I, I've seen not just the efficiency of that in terms of training and reduction of miles, but the extension of careers. And, and then I've seen athletes sort of maintain their health when others around them are falling apart because they've been overtrained. Uh, in the Primal Blueprint 90-Day Journal, there's a scoreboard, a chart every day that you log in and you're asking the, uh, the exerciser to give a 1 through 10 score for their daily level of energy, their level of motivation, and their sense of health or immune function, and then to match the difficulty of the workout with the point scores that they give. Is that helping them get to an intuitive approach? Yeah, I, I, I do think that it's uh, critical to, to track uh, every variable that you possibly can in your training, if you're a real serious athlete, and even if you're not, that's why we did the 90-day journal uh, and offer so many of these options of re recording, you know, weight and heart rate and, you know, a scale of one to 10, how you feel about this, that, and the other thing over the past few days. So over time, uh, you do develop this intuitive sense of, of how you're feeling uh, and when it's appropriate to go hard and when it's not. In my own training, I've as I've gotten older, I realize it takes me more and more time to recover from a, uh, a full body resistance training workout at the gym. Uh, it used to be that it would take me, <laughs> well, I wasn't a kid, I could do it every day. And then, and then it was every 48 hours. And then in my 40s and 50s, it was every 72 hours. In other words, I couldn't repeat, didn't want to repeat any kind of a weight training session, even if I was not doing the same movements uh, within 72 hours. Now it's up to 96 hours. So every four days, it, I would say plus or minus, but usually it's plus. So I don't go less than every four days, but sometimes every every four or five days if I'm traveling. That's when I go in the gym and hit hit the weights hard. And for me, the weights is push-ups, pull-ups, dips, lunges, squats, things like that. And and in many times they're they're weighted. So um, you know today I did a heavy leg day, which included uh, some very heavy weighted squats. I won't be able to do that again for another week. Partly because as we speak, it's Wednesday and I'll have an ultimate Frisbee game on Sunday and I, I won't be able to do anything again to my legs and, and I won't want to until I've finished that ultimate game, which is going to take two hours and then it'll take me two or three days to recover from that. So I probably won't do another uh, heavy leg workout for another week. All of this 
even though my mind says, geez, Mark, you should get into the gym and, you, you know, you, I, I still jones to go do the workout. And now I spend most of my cognitive time convincing myself it's not yet appropriate. It's not time to go back and hit it hard because I do like hitting it hard when I'm in the gym. I don't like just going through the routine. I like trying to, you know, I can't hit personal bests anymore, but I like trying to maximize the work that I can do. In terms of upper body, I can recover every four days. So I'll do, again, the push-ups, the pull-ups, the dips, uh, which are the mainstay of my routine in the gym. I'll do those hard one day, and then I won't be able to do that again for at least another four days. And and I recognize that the, that the fact that I can't do it again for four days is actually a good thing because I know that that's my body recovering, repairing the damage, getting stronger, and and doing all the things that I wanted to do as a result of that hard work I did four days ago. And then, you know, my sprinting now these days, because I, again, run hard during my ultimate games, I do have one sprint day during the week, and it's typically on a stationary bicycle in the gym just because it's easy for me to do. And I can, again, I can control the sort of joint pounding that way for myself. So I'll do a hard interval day and, and I'll separate it away from the leg day. So I did legs today. Well, I can't do an interval workout tomorrow. So I've developed this real sense of, of intuitively knowing where to put workouts, when to take days off. And I'm able to adjust that based on whether I'm feeling 100% or just showing up at the gym and not having it. There are many, many days that I turn around at the gym and I go, you know, not many, but days where I, I go, yeah, I'm just not feeling it today. And rather than slog through the workout, I'm just going to go home or I'll go for a hike. I mean, that's, that is my fallback position because I can always go for a hike. I can always do a long, slow, easy kind of thing. It comes back to intuitively knowing your body, intuitively having understood over years and years of recording the different variables and ultimately arriving at this knowledge that, well, I know what happens when my heart rate's high. That doesn't work. I know what happens if I've, uh, when I'm fasted, here's what I can do and here's what I can't do. And b- being able to adjust the workout on the fly, not necessarily because that's a good or bad thing, but that's just as opposed to having somebody have some trainer that I paid a lot of money develop the schedule. Here's what you do today, and here's what you do the next day, and here's what you do the next day. It's in my mind, it's much, it's much better and much more efficient to be able to adjust your workout because you know enough about your body. Okay, Mark, you and I both know that there's a lot of gung ho listeners out there that are having trouble embracing that kind of timeline with these long waiting periods between intense workouts. And one thing that you brought to the triathlon community many years ago that kind of revolutionized the idea of how to train was that, look, see what your performance standard is. How, how fast can you climb up that favorite hill of yours? Or if, in a CrossFit case, how many pull-ups can you do one effort max? And if you do those checkpoints regularly and fall short, that could suggest that you're in a chronic pattern where you're not benefiting from your workouts anymore. Exactly. I mean, again, the idea here behind training, theoretically, is to get better at what you do, to be more efficient at movement, to either run a faster time, jump a higher height, lift more weight, whatever it is. And even at my age, while I don't set personal bests anymore, I can still use that benchmark concept as a way of judging my relative fitness over the years and months and as a means of determining whether it's appropriate for me to go really hard on another workout. So I kind of go in, in, in cycles where I'll, um, I'll hit relative personal bests. And then because 
going any more than that is going to break me down because I am 60 years old. And, you know, you, you, you do hit a point in your life where you cannot add more weight to whatever it, ever it is that you're doing in infinitely. So I'll use those those little cyclical benchmarks for me, like, for instance, on the uh, on the days that I'm doing intervals, I'm I'm accumulating wattage and miles. I know what my watts are. I know what my miles are. So I'm, I'm able to use one workout as a comparison against a prior workout and see if I'm in the same range or if I'm doing a little bit better. And you're right. Over time, if you're uh, if you're not improving and you're decreasing, then something is wrong with your training. And, and that means taking a step back and going, OK, you know, what what variable have I overlooked? Am I sleeping enough? Sleep is critical. It's like <laughs> I, I've said it many, many times and I and I will not ever stop repeating it because it's just the more we look into sleep as a function of health and as a variable that's so important in achieving good health. It's really like right up there, like almost number one. Uh, so sleep is one of the first things I look at, not just the quality of sleep that I'm getting, but and not just the amount of time, but when I'm not getting quality sleep, that's also indicative. In other words, it's not the it's not the lack of sleep that's causing the problem. It's the problem that's causing the lack of sleep. And so I have to go back and figure out what the problem is. Am I overtraining? Is the overtraining what's causing me to not sleep well? Because they're they're so interrelated. There are so many of these variables. We call it a complex equation. And that's what the N equals one concept is about. It's it's the more you know about all of the variables in your own unique equation, whether it's your body type and your, you know, the composition of type A or fast twitch, slow twitch uh, muscles, or whether or not you're uh, predisposed to type 2 diabetes, your age, your sex, your weight, your height, all of these different variables add up to a, a long, complex equation. And once you change one variable, you have to kind of look at at what you do downstream that's going to affect your workout as a result of another variable. So if you're a person who's, who's starting out very overweight, you can't train hard uh, in the initial stages. You have to kind of be very careful about how you ramp up your sprinting, for instance. It might be that your knees are an issue. We all have this unique equation, and it behooves us to understand as much as we can about each of these individual variables. Well, Mark, how about we finish up with you giving us a typical week of your fitness regimen? I know you don't have a typical week, but as close as you can get to some of the patterns that have been working for you. Well, uh, go back this week. I um, I did a two-hour hike on uh, Saturday. That's the day before my ultimate game. Uh, that allows me, first of all, just to get out into nature, which I think is really critical. Among all of this talk about stuff, time in the gym, I find it hugely important to get out into nature and to get out into the quiet and be alone with with my thoughts. And that's also where I get a lot of great ideas for books and for uh, blog posts and things like that. Uh, so that was a probably a two-hour event that included a couple of, of uphill jogs of, say, 50 meters to 200 meters. Then I played ultimate on on Sunday, uh, Monday because my my ankles are a little chuffed from uh, the, the work that I do because I, I play with Vibrams on, I, I play with uh, minimalist shoes, Vibram Five Fingers, uh, which is qu- quite a workout on the ankles. So I, I rode the bike easy on um, on Monday. I did a heavy full body routine on Tuesday, uh, which included multiple sets of wide grip pull ups. Uh, multiple sets of dips, 
multiple sets of push-ups at different, uh, my hands at different uh, widths, and burpees. What else did I do that day? Some lunges. That was Tuesday. Wednesday, I hit the bike uh, for intervals really hard and uh, was in and out of the gym in probably 35 minutes, but probably one of the toughest workouts I did all week. Thursday, I took off. Friday, trying to th- oh, Friday I paddled. And so Friday I went for a, a, a nice uh, ocean paddle, probably an hour and a half. And for me, that's, wow, that's a great workout. And uh, I was telling you, Brad, that uh, nothing pumps me up more than uh, literally, you know, the muscles in my uh, arms and shoulders than a uh, paddling workout. It doesn't feel like a workout. It doesn't feel like a, a session. Uh, brings us back to Saturday, and um, I did another hike. So that was my week, and it changes from week to week as I travel or as my work schedule uh, and workload increases or decreases. Uh, but the bottom line is, in, in my world, that's my sweet spot. So I feel like I'm maximizing my fitness at the same time I'm optimizing my health. And I think that's probably the the goal of everybody who's undertaking the Primal Blueprint. And whatever, whether you have elite competitive goals or whether you just want to be uh, look good naked it's it's this finding this sweet spot that works for you and doing that so that on an intuitive basis day-to-day week-to-week you know what you're doing and you feel good about what you're doing thank you for listening to the primal blueprint podcast with mark sisson and we just made a special announcement this week on the mark stanley apple about all the events and the commitment that we have to live experiences in 2014 i know you love listening to podcasts but we hope to touch you directly somehow with the many events that we've announced especially the primal con lineup the first one at the time of this airing there's very very few seats left for PrimalCon Tulum on March 1st through 6th, but we've also announced a new one on the East Coast, PrimalCon Mohonk, on June 5th through 8th. That's in upstate New York. And then our fifth annual PrimalCon Oxnard, September 25th through 28th in Southern California. We also have the Primal Play Day, the Primal Transformation Retreat, the Primal Transformation Seminars, and many other options that hopefully will fit your interest and will join us with a great Primal Blueprint live experience. Until then, thanks for listening. 